This is Duke University. I uh, will talk to you a little bit about the research uh, that I've done on scaling, social impact, uh, and then uh, we'll turn things over to Paul Rice. So we got two Pauls here uh, uh, from uh, Fair Trade USA, and he'll talk about uh, all the exciting things that uh, they've been doing, including a very recent name change. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing him and keeping my discussion on the shorter side. Uh, so. Uh, it was very uh, hardening to hear Jordan's last set of comments for me, maybe not for the rest of you, but uh, he talked about the importance of understanding the customer and, and the markets that you're serving, uh, and uh, I have a marketing background. I was a marketing professor for over 30 years uh, before I uh, came over to the dark side. I used to be at the University of North Carolina, uh, and I uh, went to the dark side and came over to Duke four and a half years ago uh, and, and sort of changed careers from being a marketing professor who did study mostly social marketing. So how do you get people to engage in socially beneficial behavior? Uh, but uh, when I came over to Duke, uh, at first as just a research scholar or research uh, um, um, professor uh, and not uh, as faculty director, Greg was still faculty director then. Uh, when, I when I came over to Duke, uh, I was going to try to inject some marketing thinking into this field. That's, that was my goal. I thought that would be valuable. Uh, and uh, uh, they put me to work right away on this notion of scaling. Now, I have to be honest, uh, I was in the field of marketing for 32 years, really longer than that if you include my, um, my PhD training. Uh, and to me, the only thing scaling meant was uh, economies of scale. I had no notion of scaling being this uh, buzzword that uh, just is so important to people in venture capital, so important to people in entrepreneurial uh, uh, ventures, uh, so important to people uh, in uh, uh, anything having to do with social entrepreneurship. Uh, so it was been an education for me to learn about scaling, and I learned about it as quickly as I could, uh, and did a lot of reading and a lot of. Uh, 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 talking to people about this challenge and about this problem and, and, and why it was uh, so important. Uh, got involved with it, doing a number of things like organizing some conferences on scaling. We had uh, two of them at Duke. Uh, the first one generated a whole bunch of ideas about research uh, that needs to be done on scaling. Uh, and the second one, uh, we recruited people to write papers uh, to present at that conference. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I work with Ed Sklude, who's also at Duke in our uh, public policy school. Uh, many of you know Ed. Uh, and, and we recruited these people to write papers. Uh, several of them are in the room. Uh, uh, David Robinson, who you'll be hearing from this afternoon, wrote a paper for this uh, 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 volume. Uh, and so we presented these papers at a conference, and then we put them into this book uh, uh, for Palgrave Macmillan. And the book just was released uh, last week. So uh, go rush to buy it on Amazon. Uh, uh, and, uh, pardon me? Why you still can, right, before the, the production run runs out. Uh, so, uh, so that's one way I've learned about scaling, you know, getting other people to, to, to write papers about it. Uh, uh, and, uh, but I've also done a, a lot of thinking of my own. Uh, and while I was doing a lot of this reading, uh, one of the things I did sort of as a side uh, uh, read uh, was to read Made to Stick. Uh, by um, uh, Chip and Dan Heath. Now, Chip's a professor locally at Stanford, uh, and Dan is now a research fellow with our center, with Case. Uh, and he happens to live in Durham, uh, and uh, uh, at the time he wasn't affiliated formally with us, he was just friendly to, toward us. Now he is affiliated formally with us. But I read their book, Made to Stick, which as a lot of you know, is a, was a major bestseller. How many of you have read Made to Stick or know of the book? Okay, so you all know about it. Uh, and so in reading it, the first thing that was hit, hit me was you need an acronym. You need something that lets people remember what you're talking about, what you're all about. Uh, and, uh, and I said, geez, you know, this field of social entrepreneurship needs an acronym. Plus, I, came, I come from marketing. What do we have in marketing? Uh, does everybody know? The four P's, right? Product, price, place, promotion. So I came from marketing and I said, yeah, we need something like that in social entrepreneurship. Uh, so 
in reading a lot of this stuff, I was very influenced by Greg's work. I was very influenced by uh, the book Forces for Good, which uh, Case helped to fund and support uh, and, and generate. Um, uh, I was very influenced by, by uh, work uh, by quite a number of people in the field. Uh, I came up with an acronym, uh, which uh, is labeled SCALARS. Uh, and it stands for something. Now, this cartoon is something that I had absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, uh, it was stolen from me, in a sense, or from us. Uh, I work with a colleague uh, uh, who's in the strategy field uh, at uh, Fuqua. He's actually right now working uh, for the Council of Economics Advisors in Washington. He's on leave, but uh, Ronnie Chatterjee is his name. Uh, but we wrote this, and, uh, and then somewhere along the line, an organization, NBC, which is headquartered in Chapel Hill near Durham, uh, 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 got a cartoonist to do this drawing about scalars. So what does scalars stand for? What is my acronym all about? It's saying these are the drivers or the, uh, um, the capabilities uh, uh, that are useful uh, for uh, being effective at scaling impact. Not scaling the size of an organization, but scaling impact. Uh, and so it stands for staffing, communicating, alliance building, lobbying, uh, earnings generation, replicating, and the original version was stimulating market forces, which isn't very satisfying. And they came up with sustaining these people in MDC. I'm not totally happy with that either. But um, I want to go through each of these and try to explain uh, what uh, uh, each one tends to mean uh, and why we think uh, they are important drivers for effective scaling. Uh, and then talk a little bit about some of the empirical research that we've done uh, to try to test this model, if you will. That test whether these indeed are drivers of, of uh, effective scaling. So with staffing, um, this is basically your human resource dimension. Uh, that uh, you uh, really need uh, that capability, uh, that um, set of people uh, to make things run. Uh, there was a question from, from one of the women from Draper Richards. I forgot where, where she is, but is she back there? Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, about you know, the importance of the board. And, and I, I um, uh, concur that that should be in here. So it's not just staffing, uh, but it's an S. So you know, we're trying to have an acronym here. Uh, so it, I've evolved into thinking that this has more to do with the whole human resource dimension of things. Uh, and how important it is not only to have uh, a good uh, uh, um, uh, management, a good leadership, a good boards, but also good volunteer forces too. That, that all of this matters a lot for succeeding in scaling your impact. So that's what the S is all about. The C of communicating, that gets me back somewhat to my marketing background, uh, but it's, uh, it involves trying to make sure that uh, people buy into your theory of change. You have a notion uh, of, of, of what's going to change the world, uh, what sorts of uh, uh, forces need to be put to work to, to make things happen the way you think they can be. Uh, and uh, it's important to, to tell that story effectively. You, tell, you need to tell it effectively, obviously, to your funders. You need to tell it effectively to the people who you're trying to help so that they uh, participate in your initiative, your program. They take advantage of whatever it is that you're trying to help them do. Uh, they they uh, get the services that you're providing. Uh, so you need to communicate to the beneficiaries, the funders. You need to communicate effectively uh, to uh, uh, potential partners. Uh, and everybody else in your, your ecosystem, so to speak. Greg's going to talk later in the day about um, work that we've done and he's done on ecosystem uh, approaches to achieving uh, 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 scaling. Uh, and uh, I think a big part of, uh, of being successful at scaling is being able to understand all the players in your ecosystem and how to communicate uh, effectively with them and persuade them that what you're doing is the right way of going about things or that they should participate in what you're doing. It also involves uh, communicating to volunteers. Okay, alliance building. There is a tremendous amount of emphasis in the field now. Uh, it was a focus of last year's Skull World Forum uh, and there is uh, just a lot of recognition uh, throughout this uh, 
uh, sector now that you can't go it alone. Uh, that, that trying to be the, the sole hero that's going to save the world all by yourself uh, is not the way to be successful. That form, forming uh, collaborations uh, and successful alliances, uh, building on each other's strengths, uh, making compromises where necessary in order to capitalize on those strengths uh, is an extremely important element in being successful at scaling. So alliance building, uh, I think, is a well-recognized factor. Lobbying. Uh, I'm not happy with that word, but again, I was trying to fit an acronym. Uh, uh, it was either go with advocacy, um, which is more of what I'm thinking about here. Uh, uh, and then I needed another L word uh, for, um, for alliances, which I thought about doing linkages. Uh, but I decided to leave it as alliances, use lobbying, and then qualify it. Uh, uh, so uh, you really do need uh, in many organizations to get uh, some sort of political or government support for what you're doing. Uh, often it's necessary uh, for the financial side of things, but it's not always just for that reason. Uh, sometimes it's necessary in order for you to implement your theory of change, uh, to have a certain kind of educational program or a certain kind of uh, um, uh, change in, in like, uh, uh, if your uh, organization is trying to uh, accomplish something in the health area, like get people to quit smoking or to, or to take or to exercise more, sometimes you need to achieve some public policy change uh, uh, in order for that to be uh, uh, effective, in order to really scale your impact. Uh, you're not going to be able to, to reach a lot of people and change them dramatically without some type, type of government action or support. Doesn't always require that. Uh, in many ways, social entrepreneurship is an avenue to pursue that does not involve government. But there, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons a lot of folks are interested in it, because we all have our reservations about the effectiveness of government. But there are a lot of programs that do need to get government involvement in what, what's being done, and so that's an important part of scaling. I should say at this point that um, these are all ingredients that can be extremely important for scaling, but uh, for any given organization, uh, uh, some of these may apply and others may not. So I'm not trying to argue at all that you need every one of these ingredients. It's going to depend on the given situation that the organization or the individual is in. So the next uh, very, very, very important uh, uh, driver of successful scaling or this important capability uh, is uh, an ability to, to generate funds, uh, to, 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 to uh, build financial capital, to generate financial resources. Uh, we saw how important that's been uh, to Jordan's operation uh, in his discussion this morning uh, and uh, uh, it is uh, something that uh, uh, is uh, very uh, consuming to an awful lot of social entrepreneurial initiative. Uh, uh, now, we know that it's not the be all and end all of every organization. Uh, we, we, we know that you can sometimes be successful uh, 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 with uh, small budgets uh, uh, and with a very uh, um, uh, efficient uh, and uh, uh, a worthy group of people working for you. So it, it, it doesn't require uh, enormous amounts of money in some situations to be successful. But uh, there's an awful lot of situations where it does require ample amounts of funds. Uh, and so finding a, a business model that allows you to generate revenue uh, uh, and, and keep it flowing in, in some steady way uh, is a very important thing for a lot of these organizations. Finding a replication system can be helpful. Uh, in a sense, Jordan started out with a, you know, his, uh, his eyeglass uh, um, you call it an eyeglass kid in a bag or in a, yeah, in a backpack. Uh, and so that was kind of a replication system, sort of a franchise model. Now, franchising is not always the way to go, and I'm not trying to argue that, uh, but ha having some kind of replicable system uh, can often make a huge difference in the success of or these organizations uh, in their scaling efforts. Uh, and so um, uh, the ability to find uh, that kind of uh, key way of figuring out how to do things that can be copied. You know, I've been doing some work lately with uh, Giroux Billamoria, uh, who has uh, uh, run several uh, social entrepreneurial organizations. The most recent is something she's calling Child Finance, 
But before she ran child finance, and she's still involved with them, she has an organization called Afflatoon, which does child financial literacy around the world. Well, they figured out a curriculum that works extremely well. It needs to be tailored for different, different situations, different countries, different cultures. But she has a basic uh, uh, underlying curriculum that she uses uh, uh, to help kids learn about finances and, and money management and, uh, and the financial system, as well as some material on values so that uh, young people can become more patient uh, and learn about things like saving. Uh, so she's developed a really well-tested, replicable model of, of, uh, that's an educational module. Uh, it needs tailoring, as I said, but it, it's one that works. A lot of these organizations are more successful in scaling because they come up with those kinds of replicable systems. Finally, my stimulating market forces, which they've changed into sustaining, uh, uh, if you can find that profit margin in what you're doing. If there's some kind of financial incentive there that keeps things going, and Jordan is a great example of that. I mean, it doesn't pay all the bills, as he said, but there is that profit margin there uh, that he's discovered in a couple of different places and in a couple of different ways. Uh, if you can find that, that helps to solve a lot of the other problems, uh, uh, or at least helps to fuel uh, uh, the, the earnings generation issue uh, and uh, also um, uh, having funds helps you be more successful with your staffing, with your communicating, with your developing and replicating system, and so on. Uh, now, I'm not trying to say that uh, it's only about creating incentives uh, that lead to cash or, or to revenue generation. It can be incentives uh, that uh, 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 potentially uh, lead people to behave differently. Uh, uh, and, uh, and you kind of try to capitalize on that. I mean, w one of the things that has really helped the anti-smoking efforts in the United States, which is something I know a fair amount about, uh, is higher taxes. And, 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 you know, and how did higher taxes come about? Well, the, the organizations involved with the anti-smoking movement filed a lot of lawsuits. And a lot of those lawsuits led to a master settlement agreement, which fined the tobacco industry a lot of money. and, and, uh, and uh, uh, so there were higher prices because they had to pay those fines, but then there were also higher taxes on top of that. And that led to some social change that because of these new incentives that were out there where people um, um, had incentives to smoke less, financial incentives to smoke less. So it's not just using incentives for purposes of fundraising is what I'm trying to say. Or for sustaining. That's why I don't, I'm not crazy about the term sustaining. So this picture is in your packet, uh, and uh, you're welcome uh, to uh, use it as much as you want. I don't see any copyright things on here, so that's why we, uh, they, they took it from us, so I took it back. <laughs> and feel free to spread the word. Uh, this was the model we uh, originally put into uh, the paper that we wrote about this. Uh, and. Um, the, the important thing to say about this is the following. We think each of these uh, drivers can have an effect on the scale of social impact. Uh, you don't necessarily need all of them. You can accomplish a lot in some situations with, with a few of them. What's not shown in this diagram, because it makes it too messy, is the fact that all these things affect each other. And they all feed into each other. They're, they're, they're not just simple, what we would call in research lingo, main effects. There's a lot of interactive and moderating effects to use research lingo. So I, I, I don't want you to think that it's all simple. It's a very complicated system. Moreover, um, there are certain situational constituencies or um, what might be considered uh, uh, resource constraints or resource situations, as opposed to resource constraints, that may lead some factors to be more important than others. So a very obvious one uh, to be thinking about is uh, human resource needs or labor needs. Uh, uh, if you're running a, 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 um, a lean organization, as Jordan has explained that he, that he does, uh, you know that doesn't necessarily become 
uh, a big issue. However, he does have huge human resource needs because he needs all these people to go, go sell uh, the products out there uh, uh, to the customer. So, but there are some organizations to achieve their, the impact that they want to achieve don't necessarily need a lot of people or volunteers. So staffing or that, that first factor is not necessarily as big an issue. Um, uh, if you have a lot of uh, startup capital, because you've generated a lot of funds to, to, to launch, uh, potentially earnings generation is not so much of an issue. Now, we have a little bit of empirical support for the two comments I just made, but I, I need to do a lot more work on it. Uh, we have tried to do some survey work to see if organizations that are good at these things seem to be more successful at scaling. Uh, and we did one survey that's been published, it's actually in the book, it's a chapter in the book, uh, where the, 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 the organizations that self-assess to be high on these factors also self-assess to be high on terms of scaling their social impact. What we were not able to do in that study, and this was, a, by the way, a cross-section of a variety of social entrepreneurial organizations and social enterprises. What we were not able to do, look at was these contingencies. That are, are there certain situations where some factors are going to be more important than others? However, I, I've done a follow-up study that we haven't published yet. Uh, it's done with, it was done with an organization called Girls on the Run, uh, which is uh, the head of that Molly Barker is an Ashoka fellow, uh, and uh, um, um, it's an or, it's a program. Uh, to enhance self-esteem for girls 8 to 12, and they now have 160 chapters around the United States. And they've scaled up pretty effectively in a 10-year period. Now, this is scaling an organization uh, with some scaling of social impact. So we did a survey across all of their councils or chapters. Uh, we got the executive directors of each one to fill out a questionnaire. Uh, and again, we found that the ones that seemed to feel like they were doing better on these felt like they were having more success. But we also were able to look at their um, um, data that they had on number of girls they served uh, and on uh, the number of volunteers they had uh, and on, the, uh, on their budgets. Uh, so we had some harder data as opposed to the more squishy data. Do you feel like you've had social impact? Uh, and uh, in looking at that, uh, even on those numbers, the ones that seemed to feel like they were doing better on that, they were doing better on the hard numbers. But what was, was really interesting to me, at least, was the ones that felt like they started out three years ago weak on human resources. That they didn't feel they had their act together human resource-wise. Those are the ones where you saw a stronger effect of all these factors on success of scale. For those that were strong on human resources, they, they couldn't turn things around as much over a three-year period uh, with uh, um, these factors. So uh, if you're weak, it's much on, on, on human resources, it's much more important to build that up. And the other thing we found in that data was that those that thought they were weak in terms of financial resources three years ago, they um, didn't, weren't able to accomplish very much at all over a three-year period. So that you needed to be strong in terms of financial resources before you try to move to grow bigger. Um, and this is again organization size, not so scale of social impact. Um, but you needed good financial resources to start out with in order to let all these things work together. To sort of generate all these, to make earnings generation uh, be successful uh, and which then fuels all these other things to some degree. So what I'm trying to argue is that we've got a lot more work to do research-wise to figure and tease all this out. And we've got to do a lot more studies with organizations like Girls on the Run and other organizations that are more focused on scaling social impact and not just size. Uh, eager to talk to people if they're interested in, in, in working with us on that kind of research. Uh, but uh, the major message is, is that it depends. These factors matter, we think, but it really depends on the individual situation, both the, the sector in which the organization is operating, its financial condition, uh, uh, how, how staffed up it is in, in the first place with talented people, so on and so forth. Yes? 
Yes, in the original article, for example, we talked about youth build. Okay, so youth build was able to scale more effectively because they were able to get special legislation in the U.S. Congress to, to create these youth build uh, grants. And so the different chapters or, or affiliates were able to get these youth build grants through government funding. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's why lobbying is in there. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to hand it over to Paul. I. Do you need a slides, or you're, you're going without them? So let me. Can you uh, blank that for us, please? Uh, Paul's bio is in the packet. Uh, I'm not going to take any more time going through that. We'll just hand it over to Paul and let him talk to you. Are we recording today? Oh, we are. Okay. So you want me to keep this? Um, good morning. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for braving the rain. Uh, I would like to share a little bit about um, my venture, Fairtrade USA, and the Fairtrade model, and what we're doing to alleviate poverty. And um, in sharing that journey, reflect a little bit on our challenges of going to scale. Uh, and hopefully leave, hey Dave, leave time for us to have a dialogue. So um, maybe to start two minutes uh, about my personal journey. I um, graduated from college in 1983 and armed with um, uh, a BA in economics and a knapsack full of romantic dreams uh, and passion for social justice, I bought a one-way ticket to Nicaragua and um, decided that I wanted to dive into field work and work with farmers and I thought that would take me a year or two to figure out what international development was all about and then I'd come back and do something sensible like grad school. Uh, I stayed for 11 years. I was 22 years old when I left. I was 33 when I came home. Very much felt like uh, a Rip Van Winkle coming back um, in, in the 90s after uh, more than a decade abroad. Um, and I spent most of that time working with farmers, uh, way off the grid, way up in, in, in the mountains, working with small family farmers who were struggling to survive. Um, I worked on one development project after another, uh, all kind of very much within the, the classic model of development aid. So, you know, very well-intentioned people sitting in offices in Paris and London and Washington, D.C., developing these wonderful projects and sending millions of well-intentioned dollars to alleviate poverty. And um, I, I can tell you with, without exception, the projects that I worked on failed. Uh, we failed to achieve our objectives. We failed to, we, we failed to help equip people in the communities with the skills that they needed in order to lift themselves out of poverty. In fact, more often than not, I think we just recreated dependency on foreign aid. And unfortunately, I mean, the sad reality is that so much of the international development um, aid that's going out there is doing just that. It's recreating dependency. It's not helping people find sustainable solutions to poverty. And so much of the focus is on production. So let's help a farmer rise out of poverty by doubling his or her yields on a given acre of land, as opposed to helping farmers think about margin, price. Where do I sell my harvest at the end of the harvest so that I can um, uh, make a better living? I found all that very frustrating. And in 1990, just kind of by accident, I heard about these crazy-ass people in Europe that called themselves fair traders and that were willing to pay our coffee farmers, I was working with coffee farmers at the time, um, $1.26 a pound for coffee at a time when in the local market the middlemen were paying 10 cents a pound. And so uh, I went out and, and tried to organize a group of people and only found 24 brave souls who would step up and deliver their coffee on consignment and we put together a container of coffee and we shipped it to fair trade. And after cost we delivered a dollar a pound net back to farmers. Um, most of these farmers were growing around a ton a year. 
So um, they would have gotten $200 cash income for the year. Instead, they got $2,000. It was more money than most of those families had ever seen in their lives. And that generated a very powerful organizational process that led to over 3,000 farmers coming together over the next couple of years. In Nicaragua's first fair trade certified uh, coffee co-op, which I had the privilege of uh, being a part of for over these first four years. And we were not only creating economies of scale through you know, the, the, the number of farmers coming together, and we weren't just pooling our product, milling it, and exporting it direct, but we were also then taking on a lot of other functions that intermediaries historically had been doing. So we, we set up a village banking program and provided loans to um, micro-entrepreneurs in the communities that wanted to do more than just coffee. Uh, we set up youth training programs. We set up technical assistance programs. We set up an organic conversion program. Half of our farmers went organic, and that allowed them to grab yet another uh, price premium. Um, so by plugging people into the market, we were able to help farmers grow ears and listen to the market, and listen to the market saying, hey, if you produce higher quality, I'll pay you more. Hey, if you get organic certified, I'll pay you more. Hey, if you get fair trade certified, I'll pay you more. Right? If you're selling to the local middleman, you get the same low price no matter what your product is, no matter how good or bad it is, no matter whether it's organic or not. So direct market access was kind of the key to the transformation that I witnessed. And, you know, of course, as a result of all this extra money, our farmers were able to do things that before uh, they would have done without or they would have uh, hoped that the, the, the government or some well-meaning NGO would come in and do for them. So we built schools. We built schools in communities that had no schools. We set up scholarship programs so that kids could go on to high school because guess what? High school is still a luxury in so much of the developing world. Uh, we, we built health centers. Uh, our villages dug clean, uh, clean water wells. We brought clean water to villages for the first time in many cases. And I mean, you can, I'm sure you can imagine the health impact that that has. Um, farmers rebuilt their homes. I, I visited a friend this summer who um, is in a new home that, you know, she says fair trade bill. And the place where she used to live is now her pigsty. Um, an incredible process of transformation and empowerment. And all of that thanks to nobody's charity, right? All of the, 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 the changes and progress that I witnessed really happen um, thanks to this very simple but powerful concept of a fair price for, for hard work and a great product. So for me, that was deeply transformational. I decided that I wasn't going to be a development expert anymore or you know, uh, um, a development worker, that I wanted to really dive into this whole world of market-based approaches to poverty. And you know, whereas perhaps in the past I had been very skeptical about markets and business and, and their role in poverty alleviation, my journey led me to believe that in fact markets could be the most powerful lever for change that we could hope to have. Um, at that point, fair trade was big in Europe. There was very little going on in the States. And so after 11 years in the field, I decided to come back to the States and um, see if I could help put fair trade on the map here in this country. Um, so um, we launched Transfair USA, which is now Fair Trade USA, in um, uh, 1998, 12 years ago. And um, our organization is a nonprofit organization dedicated to uh, building the fair trade market and movement as a market-based approach to poverty and sustainable development. The role that we play in particular is that of certification. So we don't buy or sell coffee, bananas, or any other product. We help make the connection between those growers that want to go direct and companies that are on a path of virtue, if you will. Companies that are exploring the, um, this whole new emerging market of products that make a difference. And we certify the audit chain, right? So we um, certify the supply chain, uh, which means we do a supply chain audit tracking product from certified fair trade farms all the way through to retail shelves. Uh, the farmers themselves have to adhere to a very rigorous social and environmental code of conduct. Uh, um, and um, the companies that we work with have to open their books and essentially demonstrate that they bought direct, uh, paid fair trade prices, and, and, and worked with fair trade certified growers. So, um, 
you know, in essence, the, um, the theory of change is that sustainable development and poverty alleviation can be achieved through partnership with business and through using market forces as the driving lever uh, or the driver of change. But at the end of the day, as I'm sure you can appreciate, all that depends on the consumer, on you and me. And so my response to the critique of, well, isn't fair trade kind of a, uh, an artificial intervention in the market? Well, no, actually, no. It's born by demand. So it's growing because consumers actually want it and are buying it. And the day that consumers decide they don't want it, the market falls. Now I can go back to Nicaragua. So um, what have we done over the last 12 years? Um, to date, more than 800 companies here in the U.S. have signed up and have started selling fair trade certified products. Um, everything from coffee and tea to chocolate, bananas, flowers, rice, wine. Uh, fair trade vodka just hit the market, made with, uh, with certified quinoa from the highlands of Bolivia, uh, and is winning all kinds of quality awards, um, and so on. So the category is growing, not because of our drive or ambition, but because retailers are coming to us and saying, this fair trade market is hot. What else you got? Um, so 800 companies from small, mission-driven, 100% fair traders to um, major transnational companies like Starbucks and Costco and Green Mountain, Dunkin' Donuts, Whole Foods, even Walmart is selling fair trade certified products today. Uh, really exploding our notions of where the conscious consumer shops. Um, she doesn't just shop in Whole Foods. Uh, we uh, are a, still a very small organization, so our budget uh, this year is around $11 million. But we have been able to catalyze that into a $1.3 billion retail market um, here in the United States. So retail sales this year are around $1.3 billion here and $4 billion globally. Europe is still about 20 years further down the road, um, but uh, we aim to catch up. And um, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, ways to measure our success, but one very important way is the incremental income that goes back to farmers as a result of selling certified product. So because we're certifying um, farms uh, all over the world in all pro product categories every year, every quarter, we know what farmers are selling at, and we know what they would have sold at if they had sold in the local market. And so that delta is our best indicator of the dollar impact of our work and allows us to create a, a, um, a social return on investment number every year that uh, relates to how much we're investing in the market. So right now, we're able to generate between 3 and $4 in impact for every dollar that we invest um, in our operations here. Um, this year, we anticipate 30 to $40 million going back to farmers in above market uh, income as a result of, of uh, selling to a, the, the fair trade market. And cumulatively, now we've, we've passed $200 million in, again, above market revenue that's going back to communities. And that's allowing them to do these amazing things in their villages. Um, and of course, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the invisible dividend of this revenue stream going back to villages is the pride and the hope and the dignity that comes from feeling like you did it yourself, right? Feeling like you built that school yourself thanks to all your hard work and thanks to getting a, a fair price for your coffee or your bananas. Um, the interesting thing, you know, here we are a little more than a decade into this market, and the interesting thing that we're facing now is that far sooner than we expected, the fair trade market is both mainstreaming and potentially migrating way beyond where we started in terms of food products. So, you know, when Dunkin' Donuts says we want to convert all our espresso to fair trade, uh, when Walmart says we want to launch a whole line of fair trade coffees and explore fair trade produce as well, that's kind of a wake-up call for us in terms of our assumptions about who the conscious consumer is, right? Who's seeking these products. And it makes us believe um, or hypothesize that the values of fair trade uh, are, in fact, values that everyday ordinary, ordinary Americans aspire to. Uh, the latest consumer research indicates that 34% of the adult American population has seen the fair trade label and know what it means. 
So that's about 65 to 70 million adults that have seen, have seen the label. Um, and the conversion rate is actually very high. So 57% of those who know what the label is are actually uh, looking for it and buying fair trade products on a regular basis. So that's encouraging. That's pretty cool, right? That a scrappy nonprofit can, you know, together with, with corporate partners, build that kind of awareness and, uh, and demand. On the other hand, it feels um, woefully inadequate. I mean, I'm, you know, we uh, look to Europe as an example of where we hope to get. They've been doing it a lot longer. For some reason, fair trade started there a long time ago and really took hold. And so today you have consumer awareness levels in the 80 to 90% range in the UK, in Switzerland, and other countries in Europe. And as a result of that awareness, uh, market penetration is much, much greater. So um, in Switzerland, for example, 50% of all the bananas consumed in that market are fair trade certified. We're no longer talking about a tiny market niche. We're talking about a mainstream market phenomenon in which consumers on a regular basis are buying fair trade products. And indeed, it's part of their lifestyle. It's part of their self-identity. In the UK, uh, 35 to 40% of the bananas and coffee are fair trade certified. So again, another great example of huge uh, market penetration, consumer awareness, and impact around the world as a result of the model. Now, you know, the UK has, what, 60 million people as a total population in a land area the size of Wisconsin. So our challenge, you know, apropos to scaling, our challenge is uh, different. Um, it's a big country, and it's dispersed. And we don't have two or three major retail chains. We have a bunch. And so getting into um, uh, retail venues and, 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 and putting the product in front of people where they shop has become one of our biggest challenges. Uh, the research now indicates that um, for those who are aware of the fair trade label, their biggest problem with fair trade is not the price, it's not the quality, it's availability. They can't find it. They don't see the label enough or they don't see it enough in the, in the stores. So that really has become one of the biggest challenges apropos to scalability is how do we get new retailers to join? How do we get new retailers to test the product? Um, and, and how do we build awareness? Because those two kind of work together, right? To the, to the extent it's on the shelf, people become aware of it. Uh, we've had some great successes uh, just this year. Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream just announced that they're converting 100% of the ingredients, uh, of the certifiable ingredients in their ice creams to fair trade in the next two years. Uh, Green and Black's chocolate uh, is going 100% fair trade cocoa in all of their chocolates. Um, Honest Tea just announced that they're converting all of their teas to fair trade certified. So it feels like we're at an inflection point. Um, I wouldn't say we've gone to scale. If, if Paul, if you invited me here to share lessons of how a social venture went to scale, I was the wrong guy. I don't feel like a $10 million venture and a billion dollar market is scale. Um, we really aspire to be on every shelf in every store in the country and to have much greater consumer awareness uh, and, and, and purchasing and as a, as a result, of course, impact. I mean, that's what it's all about for us. It's about the impact. Um, today, we reach over a million farmers in 60 countries. And that feels great, but then you look at poverty statistics around the world and you realize it's a drop in the bucket. So I think we're poised for scale, and I think um, you know, the next couple of years are going to see dramatic growth. Um, and so how do we do that? And you know, I, I, I like um, um, Paul's lens through which to look at some of the critical ingredients for scale, and, and certainly some of that resonates with us. And you know, top of our list is how do you capitalize growth? Um, we chose to do this venture as a nonprofit because as a nonprofit we felt, at least in 1998, that as a certifier, our core role in the fair trade ecosystem was to provide trust and credibility to those companies that were trying to practice fair trade and needed a way to communicate credibly to consumers. Right? Because the conscious consumer segment tends to be rather skeptical of companies that say, hey, we're doing the right thing, but that don't have any kind of independent verification or proof of that. So we decided as a trust provider that it would be best to take financial self-interest out of the equation and, and, and present ourselves as a nonprofit in it for all of y'all, not for us, right? 
Now, that's kind of old school, you know, for, for, for those of us in the change the world business, that's kind of old school thinking. I mean, I think fast forward today, um, the public is much more open to the notion that a for-profit enterprise or a hybrid enterprise of one kind or another can be just as virtuous, if you will, and, and effective at social change um, as a nonprofit. But suffice to say, we made that decision, and so as a 501c3, we have the good news, we have access to, you know, wonderful grants like um, the Skoll Award. Thank you very much. Um, but we, you know, equity capital as, as a vehicle for gro capitalizing growth is not, is not an option for us. <clears throat> I have companies falling over themselves coming to me saying, can you do fair trade in diamonds? Can you do fair trade in gold? Can you do fair trade in apparel? I mean, we have so many expansion opportunities and no cash to go after those. If we were for profit, I have no doubt that I would be spending most of my time down here on Sand Hill Road, and I'd, I'd, I'd be able to, to leverage the market growth, the great corporate partnerships into growth capital. We don't have that option, at least until we do a for profit spinoff. Um, uh, if, you know, and that maybe that's the way to go. That's kind of the moment that we're at. But suffice to say, despite the wonderful work of organizations like Skoll, the capital market for ventures that are going to scale is, is, is underdeveloped. There's just not big chunks of money, right? Like ventures at my size trying to go where we're trying to go need, you know, five to $20 million investments, not, you know, half a million dollar investments. So that's, you know, I would argue the biggest challenge for us, the, biggest, the most important ingredient, you know, from where I stand in terms of going to scale and, and the biggest challenge for social entrepreneurs that have chosen nonprofit vehicles. Um, on the other hand, in, you know, the, the, the insight around um, um, creating uh, revenue models is absolutely right on. And so, you know, I've been in the nonprofit sector my entire life. And so as such, I've been 10 cupping my entire life. And I can tell you that to have a revenue stream uh, for this venture by virtue of the service that we sell to industry is amazing, right? So, so we, we certify companies' products and we charge them for that audit and certification service. And roughly $7 million um, this year out of my $10 million budget will come from certification revenues. That's great. I mean, that means basically core operations are self-funded and the, the grant revenues are funding expansion and producer support and consumer awareness. Um, and that in turn gives us um, greater independence, strategic independence, and it, it gives us a, you know, a strong basis um, for future financial sustainability. Um, but it's hard to, to bootstrap growth with free cash flow from certification revenues. I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's frustrating. Um, the, other, the other thing I would add, um, you know, really uh, Paul's model speaks to communication and alliance building and, and, and all of that, as I'm sure you can appreciate, is core to the success of our model. I mean, at the end of the day, our model of change depends on awareness and then awareness converting into demand, consumer demand. Individuals like you and me realizing that every time we go to the store, we have a chance to vote. We have a chance to vote for a better world with the products that we choose. And, you know, this is, this is like, I mean, in, in the social justice movement, this is like heresy to pull out a dollar in front of a crowd, right? Forgive me, but, you know, it, it's that simple. Our, our, our country is full of well-intentioned people who realize that the planet is on fire. We've got huge problems before us, and most people feel powerless. We don't feel like our voice matters. Most people feel totally disempowered to be a part of a, a solution, whether it's climate change or poverty, whatever it is. But hey, um, we all eat. We all wear clothes. Well, most of us. In Berkeley, not everyone does, but <laughs> right? So you know, if you can create product choices that make a powerful economic or, or, or social or environmental difference in the world, then you give people a way to vote every time they go to the store. And 
I believe that the success of our movement to date in Europe and here is precisely because that notion is really compelling. You know, the notion that with something as easy and simple as a daily cup of coffee, you can reach halfway across the world and help a family keep their kids in school. That's an incredibly empowering notion. Um, so how do we do that? I mean, you know, for us, it's, um, it's, it's not easy without resources, so we really rely on our corporate partners. And so we just recently did a test with um, um, an unnamed big box club store um, around fair trade bananas because they told us that they were certain that their members would not pay more money for fair trade bananas. So we said, let's test it. So we tested it. Uh, and, and it was uh, 10 cents a pound more to cover the fair trade premium, the extra money that went back to the, the, the growing communities. And um, they put the product in, no signage, no education, just the label. And um, guess what? Didn't sell very well. And they didn't give people a choice. They just switched out the non-fair trade bananas and put in the fair trade bananas. Didn't sell very well. So they came back and said, you know what? The test failed. And we said, you know what? You made a really big assumption, a faulty assumption. You assumed that most of your members knew what the label meant. Can we please do another test? Um, OK, what's the test? Can we please put up signs and tell people what the hell the label means? Doesn't have to be heavy handed. Doesn't have to be a lot of text. Just an image and a simple message. I don't know if you guys can see this. Every purchase matters. Your purchase helps keep kids in school and a URL. They said, OK. But you guys got to print the signs, and you guys got to hang the signs, because we're not going to do that. So we did. We did. We went out and hung signs in uh, 18 club stores in, um, you know, in the Mid-Atlantic region. Not the sweet spot of fair trade consumer awareness. Uh, the sweet spot is the Northeast and, and the West Coast. So three months later, we got the report card back. Uh, the sales of fair trade bananas in those stores, even at the higher price point, was up year over year 11%. And banana sales across their system were up 1%. So the, the, the takeaway was if you tell consumers what they're buying, they'll step up. Uh, as a result of that test, it's now, they doubled the volume, so it's going into another whole district, and we're looking at doubling yet again this year. And, you know, so the moral of that story is I think Americans are hungry for ways to make a difference. But we've got to tell them the story. We've got to reach them with the story. And, you know, in terms of scale, uh, that for me is one of the biggest challenges and opportunities before us. So we don't have a whole lot more time. I'll stop there and hope you have great questions and comments. Thank you. Yeah. Is It's really, um, that's a great question. So Michael Hiscox, a professor at Harvard, has done some great research in this regard um, around uh, price elasticity of demand uh, and found that not only are American consumers willing to pay um, a premium of kind of between 5 and 20% in, in different um, product categories, but furthermore, that they expect to pay more. And so the interesting thing was when he ran side-by-side -side products, identical product, but one had the fair trade label and the other didn't, he found that um, at the same price, the fair trade product sold better. But then when he priced the fair trade product up by 10%, the sales were even higher, indicating that consumers were actually seeing the, the, the price difference as uh, perhaps a signal of the veracity of the claim. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, on average, fair trade products hit the shelf at between 5 and 10% um, price premium above uh, a comparable quality product uh, that isn't fair trade. Uh, you know, if you go into Starbucks, fair trade coffee is actually the same price as non-fair trade coffee. And if you go into Walmart, you find that fair trade coffee is actually um, very reasonably priced, and they've been able to achieve that because they found ways to innovate their supply chain. So they actually went more direct than anyone else. They um, connected with roasting companies in Brazil, in Colombia, which drove costs down. So actually, 
farmers that sell to Walmart, farmers that sell fair trade coffee to Walmart and farmers that sell fair trade coffee to Starbucks are getting the same price. But the consumer price is dramatically different. And it's because of Walmart's, I mean, I'm, I don't mean to sound like I'm, um, you know, a shill for Walmart, because I'm not by any means. But the reality is that they have been uh, relentlessly um, focused on and successful in wringing inefficiency out of the supply chain, going more direct, and kind of delivering at both ends, both to consumers and producers in terms of our model. And so it doesn't matter Fair trade sales have grown during the recession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my name is Wendy Millen. I'm with the Nature Conservancy. And I'm curious, you mentioned that you've been considering, or it's a, a transition point that you might spin off to uh, a for-profit. So have you looked at pros and cons, or is this sort of just noise in your head that maybe it's time to do that? Um, it's the noise in my head. That's a really good expression. Um, yeah, there's a lot of noise in my head. Uh, no, actually, we are, uh, we are now kind of taking the next step and doing uh, due diligence around this possibility. Because um, you know, as I'm sure you can appreciate, fundraising in the environment of the last couple of years has been really challenging. And so it does feel like now we need to at least seriously explore the possibility that there could be a hybrid model with a, a for-profit uh, in that. You have any advice? <laughs> Well, we've done it plenty of times, so I mean, we're happy to talk about it. But I'm curious, the, the first blush, blush what strikes you as sort of the cons for moving forward? Um, well, um, well um, lack of experience, for one. Never done it before. Um, but I suppose we could get good advisors and, and, and support. Um, credibility and, and, and brand image. So I think you know my biggest concern would be that the NGO community, the activist community, uh, farmer groups, maybe even companies would say, "You went for a profit? What changed?" Right? So I mean, a communication strategy, I mean, research to figure out what people might think of such a change, and then a, a really good communication strategy to help people understand that we're not changing our mission uh, by developing a for-profit entity. That that would be key to success. Yeah. How, 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 about, how about we do a little bit more because Paul stole so much of my time? Okay. Let's take a few more. Yeah, we'll take a few more questions. Yeah. I'm Jim Durant. Two questions. Uh, one, do the more enlightened uh, foundations like Gates uh, seem like they'd be interested in something like this? And then two, given your success as anyone, God forbid, our federal government and the aid programs, have they changed their mind at, from production to revenue, or are they just totally intransigent to keep the bureaucracy employed and so forth? Um, there may be others here more qualified to answer those than me. I mean, we have not worked with Gates yet. We would like to. Um, you know, I think every foundation has their particular focus and, and, um, and programmatic interests. And I think in general, people who have focused on third world poverty have started to look more seriously at market-based approaches as opposed to just production-based approaches. Um, and it, certainly in the NGO world, in the nonprofit world, people, I, I see much more openness now to revenue generating activities than before, right? It's no longer considered selling out to try and find financial self-sustainability from within. Yeah? I, I was just wondering if you've looked at all at low-cost lending as a way, since you do have a revenue stream as a way to Look like, you mean borrowing? Would we borrow money? Right. We have. Yeah, we have. I mean, well, I guess just to push <coughs> part of it, why isn't that sufficient? Is that just the um, We maxed out. Uh, we borrowed a total of $5 million in PRI money at 1% you know, interest and 3% interest uh, to fuel the growth of five years ago. And uh, now my balance sheet looks like shit. <laughs> So, you know, until I pay that off, uh, you know, I mean, there's no equity instrument that, um, you know, can help us out of the quandary we're in. So now we have to pay off the existing debt and really find other creative ways to fuel growth. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Jill? <coughs> yeah. Yeah, good to see you. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigate the tension between building a movement and then also taking care of uh, not just Fair Trade USA? 
Tell me more. What do you mean by that? So there's this tension, right? You're out in the world, and you've got these allies, as Paul was pointing to, and you're, and you're really trying to get to this one-day vision where all of us are buying fair trade, or at least have access to fair trade products. Yeah. And so you're, you're always taking responsibility for a whole field and leading it. And yet, at the end of the day, you have to make sure that you can pay the bills at Fair Trade USA. And, and there's a tension there. That, and I wonder how you feel like when you're out in the world, how you take care of the world and then also make sure that, that the folks at home in that sort of organizational sense are cared for enough. Um, well, this speaks to the, uh, the, the, the people piece of the, I think you called it staffing. Um, I have a great team. Uh, I have an amazing team. Um, Lynn Lohr, our vice president, is here today, and there are 65 other wonderful souls in our organization who um, make things happen. Um, you know, and as an entrepreneur, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, my journey in terms of figuring out how to attract really strong, independent-minded, passionate people, and then empower them to do the job and get the hell out of the way, that's been a struggle, right? It's probably a struggle for, for most entrepreneurs. But um, at least I can name it and work on it, right? And I think, you know, uh, because I'm the outside guy now so much of the time, um, fundraising, doing deals, um, communicating the message, trying to build the market, uh, I'm really not around that much anymore. And so I have to rely on um, that team from top to bottom to get it done. And they're doing an amazing job. Yeah. Um, I, Ruth Shapiro, I spend a lot of my time in Asia. And um, you're talking about, in the United States, accelerating a trend of awareness. But as you probably know well, consumer consciousness throughout the entire region of Asia is nascent, if not non-existent. So what, what would be, to, to jumpstart from zero, um, on the notion, is it about putting products on the shelf? I mean, what, what are the key drivers to get the momentum going that you learned when you were doing it here um, from the European, you know? We learned, we learned how to surf. We learned how to ride waves. So when we launched Fairtrade Coffee, this nation was in the midst of the cafe boom, right? where people were turning away from Folgers and Maxwell House and going to cafes, and cafes became the place where you took a date, right? It was like the bar of the 90s, right? It, there was a cultural phenomenon around coffee and, and an upgrading to gourmet coffee, which, oh, by the way, made the economics of fair trade really doable. I mean, there's a reason why we don't have fair trade Folgers yet, right? <laughs> I mean, the economics of fair trade don't work as well, but they work really well for the gourmet market. And so by forming partnerships with the gourmet segment of the market, and making fair trade a part of their story. Right, but Starbucks stopped what it was doing in Asia because it was not. And, you know, I'm just, I, I, don't have an, I don't have an answer for Asia. I have an answer for you know, how, how you get an unknown concept into the consciousness. And, and, and that is by figuring out other trends or phenomenon and then, and then writing them. And so you know, I actually. Um, recently read um, some amazing figure, and I've forgotten what it is, about how many people in China are drinking coffee now. Coffee is a big boom trend, right? So um, I'm fine being a bonus prize. Like, I don't need to be the reason why people are buying coffee, right? If they want to buy coffee for some other motivation, that's cool, right? And I, I'm happy being on the back of the pack. You know what I mean? So that's what I mean by riding the wave. If we can get into that growth trend, then I think we can make a difference even in a market like China. Can we take one more, please? You mentioned that you have other industries approaching you, and the concept seems to work really well with food and agriculture. But what about, you said diamonds, or um, I heard recently about somebody trying to do it with oil companies. Um, how would you see the economics of that working, and what kinds of issues would you see coming up in that, in that case? So um, I don't know anything about the oil project, but we've worked on uh, feasibility in diamonds, and now we're moving into apparel. So for the first time, we're actually testing how fair trade works in the manufacturing sector. Um, it's an incredibly complex supply chain, right? I mean, it's one thing to certify boatloads of bananas. It's another thing to track cotton through the supply chain from farm to gin to spinning factory to cut, so finish to retail, and to try and make sure that um, uh, labor standards are adhered to all the way through that and to be able to, tr to create a level of transparency that allows you to trace product all the way through that supply chain and then to be able to deliver benefits 
back to both farmers and workers, which is what our standard does. We will effectively double factory workers' wages when, when this standard is implemented. Um, but then the economics of that are really unknown. I mean, in apparel, you can't tell big brands or retailers that um, um, American consumers will pay more for fair trade products. They say, oh, well, that may work for food, but you don't know nothing about apparel, right? And so it's been really hard for us. We've just launched apparel with a dozen small mission-driven brands, and hopefully they can prove the, 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 the hypothesis, right? But all the big brands that we've talked to, Nike and Gap and Levi's and, and everyone else, they're a little nervous about the notion, you know, and skeptical about the notion that Americans will pay a couple of bucks more for a T-shirt or a pair of jeans that, um, uh, that's fair trade. So, you know, I think just as, um, you know, the path with bananas um, showed us that, you know, through testing and consumer awareness, positive results were achieved. That's kind of where we're going. Um, you know, I've been out talking to Target and Sam's Club and anyone who will listen about, okay, let's do a test. Let's just see it. Don't believe me. Let's just test it. Because, you know, for me, that's kind of the next wave. We've had 30 years of anti-sweatshop activism. God bless them. That's the only reason why anyone wants to see fair trade apparel, because there's awareness around the exploitation of seamstresses around the world. But unfortunately, in 30 years of anti-sweatshop activism, no one's ever been able to ensure that those seamstresses actually got more money. And that's what we do. Um, I was in India in January uh, visiting with factory workers who make three bucks a day right now. And um, we're going to help them get six bucks a day. And that doesn't sound like much money, but <laughs> that, that, that extra money it means a huge difference in their lives. And they're so excited. And you know, they, they're, they're, they're eager to engage, and, and, and the cotton farmers as well. So um, you know, for me, the next two years with apparel is going to be a learning journey to figure out how to implement a standard and verify the com uh, uh, compliance with that standard in a very complex supply chain. And if we can pull it off, then I think toys, shoes, electronics, sky's the limit. You got a hook? You going to pull me off now? <laughs> what? I do want to give an opportunity yeah. for closing remarks. OK, let's go for it. Closing remarks. Well, he's a tough act to follow, as you can tell. Uh, I, I just find everything uh, very intriguing about it. I, I did some work in the last few years with Newman's Own. And they're a for-profit company, but they give all their profits to charity. So that might be a model that you, that you might spend more time. Maybe you have to that, because they do have some uh, sustainable products. Yeah. And they've moved in recently into wine, into a whole bunch of new categories. Yeah. So if you want a connection, I provide it. But, um, I think that there's there's some overlap. It all gets down to this consumer communication. That, that yeah. how do you differentiate your product in the eyes of consumers uh, so they uh, weight the fair trade attribute or the giving all profits to charity attribute or some other social good that you're saying you do better than somebody else? Yeah. And how, do you, how are you persuasive with that? You, you figure out a way to do that in the markets you've operated in. You obviously need to do that further if you're going to yeah. solve this sustainability problem. Any final, final remarks? Or? Yeah, I'll final remarks. <laughs> I think I've probably remarked enough as it is. Right. Thank you very much. Produced by Duke University, online at duke.edu.